Good morning. My name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to add my welcome to you all this morning. It is a a good day to start thinking about our Compassion Connect clinic because even though it's a a few days off, it's good to mark it on your calendars. And uh, in our Way of Jesus series that uh, we just began last week, today we're going to be exploring the Way of Compassion. So what a great day to be reminded of the importance of having compassion in our hearts for others and how Jesus leads us uh, to share the love of God in our lives by how we live and love those around us. Uh, We also launched last week what we're calling our Way of Jesus 50-Day Challenge, and so if you're a part of that, we're excited to be doing a daily prayer practice together. Just to clarify, each week uh, there's going to be one parable for the week, and there's one prayer practice for the week. And each day we're going to read or listen to the same parable, and we're going to practice the same prayer practice so that it becomes a part of our uh, toolkit and how we uh, live in relationship with God. If you're not a part of the challenge, that's okay. Uh, It's never too late to jump in. It's not about perfection or having to get all 50 days in. It's really about just coming together and sitting at the feet of Jesus and allowing the life of God to pour into us so that, uh, as we even sang today, his love can overflow out of our lives into the lives of others. If, if you want to join, you can simply text 50-DAY to our church text number, which is 253-993-1797, or you can always go to our website and all the information is there for you to get connected and get involved. Uh, I believe that God is inviting us in this season to a deeper experience of his power and his presence at work in our lives. And in that spirit, we are pursuing the parables of Jesus to rediscover the way of Jesus so that the life of Jesus might manifest itself in us more fully. And so in that spirit, before we jump in, I just want to invite you to pray with me one more time and ask God's blessing on this time of looking into his word. God, we do thank you that you are a God who speaks, that you've given us your word and you've spoken through your son and you speak to us through your spirit. And we ask that you would speak now. Speak the words that we each need to hear today so that we know that we have met with the living God today and that you are inviting us to step out of the places that we've been and onto the pathway of life with Jesus that you invite us to experience, not because of how good we are, but because of how good you are and your desire to bless us and to make us a blessing to those around us. So speak to us today and give us the courage to respond as we go from this place. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in our series that we kicked off last week, we started uh, introducing the way of love by looking at the parable of the compassionate father and his two lost sons, typically known as the parable of the prodigal son, We are reminded through the way of love that Jesus invites us to, like the prodigal son, to come back to ourselves, to uh, realize who our true selves are as we discover our identity in Jesus, and that the relationship of love to a heavenly Father who loves us better than we could ever love ourselves is revealed to us in His Son. We also reminded as people who are created and loved by that kind of a God that our identities are neither as prodigals nor as servants or slaves, but are found when we discover that we are children of a heavenly father who invites us to be family together with him. 
and that it's his love in us that opens the doors to enter into that identity in our lives and to join in life as a celebration feast of the amazing gift that God has given us of his love and his mercy and his grace. Today we're exploring the way of compassion, and it's one of the famous parables of Jesus, again, that's found in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37, and known, it's known as the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now Jesus shares this story of the Good Samaritan in the midst of a conversation that he's having with a religious leader who the Bible identifies as an expert in the law. Uh, meaning that he is someone who knows just about everything there is to know about the scriptures, about the law of Moses, about the Torah, about uh, the Jewish religious law that was uh, being followed at the time. And he would be somebody who not only studied scripture, but was expected to be able to teach others about scripture and God's law. And beginning in verse 25 of chapter 10, the story uh, picks up where it says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be coming, going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place that he saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Or more accurately, it should say, when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these Three, do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now in the lawyer's question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We can see that there was a general understanding in the Jewish faith at that time that God's ultimate plan of salvation for his people included not only the coming of the kingdom of God on earth, but the expectation of eternal life with God in heaven. However, we can also assume that because he is asking this question to Jesus, there's some doubt on the part of the expert of the law whether Jesus' teaching lines up with what the religious leaders at that time would be teaching, that you can inherit eternal life and be a part of the kingdom of God by keeping the law of God. That was the expectation. That was the assumption. And we can assume then that the question about what must be done to inherit eternal life is a subtle attempt to trip Jesus up in his teaching in relationship to the Jewish law. Jesus' known association with outcasts and with sinners, his actions and his teaching on keeping the Sabbath, 
his seeming lack of concern for holiness and purity laws when it comes to touching and coming in contact with things that are unclean like lepers or people with fevers or women with issues of blood or even dead bodies. All these made the legalistic and religious leaders of Jesus' day anxious and angry. And so this seems to be especially likely with the lawyer's attempt to later justify himself in his follow-up question by asking, and who is my neighbor? You see, if the law doesn't mark out clear boundaries between the righteous and the unrighteous, as was assumed by those who are in and those who are out, then what good was the law anyway? What was it then that would determine who actually was participating in the kingdom of God and who wasn't, and thus who would inherit eternal life and those who wouldn't? In contrast, Jesus was teaching his disciples to follow himself, and, and he was telling them that in order to gain life, they had to, to lose it. And such a statement that didn't give adequate credence to the role of the law in helping people to find their way to God could easily lead to a charge of heresy, according to the re religious leaders. But as Jesus so often does, he, he turns the situation around on the guy, right? By this, he takes this expert and forces him to focus not on the rule of the law, but on the intent of the law. Jesus turns the lawyer's question into a teachable moment for the lawyer and for all those who were listening and for us today who get to read this story all these years later. In typical Jesus fashion, he responds to each question with a question of his own. How do you read what is written in the law, he asks, and who proved to be the neighbor to this, this uh, person in the parable? And when the lawyer gives his answers to Jesus, that's when Jesus then turns around and answers the lawyer's question. See, in answering Jesus' first question about the law, the lawyer is quoting from the Shema, or Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, where it calls us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then uh, what was familiar to them at the time as well was this second command that was like it, to love one's neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19.18 tells us, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Or then again in verse 34, it says, the, the foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you are foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. See, these two commandments to love God and to love neighbor were not new with Jesus. They were the foundation of the Jewish faith, and they were the foundation of Jesus' testimony about the God who was inaugurating the kingdom that he had promised through the arrival of his son. It wasn't over the significance, uh, any disagreement with Jesus wasn't over the significance of the love commands, but really in their application and their intent on how it was supposed to impact the lives of those who sought to follow those commands. How far does the love of neighbor actually reach. You see, here we see that Jesus will not allow any legal boundaries to be erected that will, will allow people to feel like they've somehow completed their obligation to God by keeping some religious code. That's never what the law was supposed to be about. Love doesn't have a boundary. Love can't be legislated. We can't say that we've ever loved enough. That's what the, the Apostle Paul does in Galatians 5 when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. If you remember there, he says, against such, there is no law. 
You can't be patient enough or loving enough or gracious enough or kind enough. There's no limit to letting the character of the God who loves us flow through us so that we can be a blessing to those around us. It's not about following a code or a law that makes you acceptable to God. It's that you've already been accepted by God, so now you can live in the freedom of the love of God flowing through your life. Love doesn't have a boundary where we can say we have loved enough, nor does it permit us to choose those we will love and those we won't, or those who are our kind only. Again, we can see that there are two different responses, right? All three travelers in the story see the man in need. But for the priest and the Levite, those people that you would expect to be the ones who respond in compassion, seeing this man in need is actually an impetus for caution and for self-protection, for avoidance, and and to go a different way. While for the Samaritan, seeing the the man's need is the cause of compassion in his heart. And it's the compassion that he experiences, it's his willingness to have a heart for this man that motivates him to action. It's not some religious law code that says you have to do this. He has a heart of love and compassion that motivates him to be the kind of person who would respond when he sees somebody in need. Now, the road to Jerusalem from Jericho is about 17 miles. And the terrain is barren and hilly and supposedly filled with uh, caves and lots of places where bandits and thieves could hide out and lay in wait for travelers passing by. And for this reason, it was notoriously a treacherous road. But a lot of people had to walk this road from Jericho to Jerusalem. Apparently, Jericho was a popular place for many of the orders of priests to live. Uh, Some 24 different orders of priests lived in, or half of some 24 orders of priests lived in Jericho. And each order of priests would serve in the temple for one week each year. And so it's assumed that many of these priests and these Levites would travel the road from Jericho to Jerusalem to stay there for the week of service, and then again they would travel home. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever walked 17 miles, but that's a pretty long walk. <laughs> Lots of opportunities to fall into the hands of people who have uh, poor intent. Now, you can quickly see in the story of Zechariah, I don't know if you remember the story of Jesus' birth when it talks about Zechariah being a priest in the temple. Just real quick, in Luke 1, 8, it says, Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God. See, that? there's that example. He was serving for that week, and Zechariah had the, the opportunity to be the priest in the temple when Jesus was brought uh, for, for, by his parents, right, to, to uh, do the, uh, the rites of... What is it? Come on, Jewish boys, eight days. Circumcision, yes, thank you. (laughs) It's also important to understand that Samaritans and Jews had notoriously bad relations. They didn't like each other. (laughs) Jews believed Samaritans were people of doubtful descent and bad theology. They were thought to be descendants of a people who were brought in by the Assyrians when they had conquered the land and other conquerors over the years as a, as a way of kind of colonizing the land with their own people. They were monotheistic, meaning they believed in one God, but they accepted only the Torah as scriptures, and they argued that the true temple should be on Mount Gerizim rather than on uh, the Jerusalem Mount. And so the idea of a good Samaritan for a good Jew was an oxymoron. 
The priest and the Levite are the good guys that you would expect to uh, help this wounded traveler, surely not the Samaritan. He would be the last person whom you would expect to show compassion or to, to respond to a person in need. He would be, according to Jesus, the most likely non-neighbor that the expert in the law would consider. Yet these two supposedly righteous men, this priest and this Levite, are the ones who pass by a man who is in obvious need and, in fact, cross over to the other side of the road to avoid him altogether. Now, we could speculate that these religious leaders may have some pious motivation for avoiding the man, right? Uh, I've heard that uh, they might be desiring to keep themselves ritually pure because they're on the way to the temple and, and they, they, they have work to do, so they're going to avoid this man so they don't make themselves impure. Now, that's a possibility, but the story doesn't say that. Right? Jesus doesn't attribute any other motives to these men other than they're motivated to avoid this guy because they don't want to help him. It's their choice of action that determines what's in their heart. You see, then this Samaritan comes along, and seeing the man, he takes pity on him. Or as I said better, he is moved with compassion for the man. And his choice of actions that are motivated by what's in his heart are listed in detail, right? He goes to him, he bandages him, he pours oil and wine, he puts him on his donkey, he carries him to the inn, he takes care of him. He even leaves enough money behind for two weeks' worth of room and board so that he has time to recover. And after all of that, he says, when I come back, if there's any more expense, I'll cover it. Just start a tab. <laughs> the contrast between the two responses, between the priest and the Levite and the Samaritan, is so polar opposite that it's impossible to miss what Jesus is trying to get this expert in the law to understand. You see, Jesus asked the simple question, which of these three was a neighbor to the man? And the lawyer just as simply answers, the one who had mercy. You see, the lawyer wants to know a legal definition of who his neighbor is so that he can know when and where he's required to love people in order to be acceptable by God, right? Because he knows, according to the law, that says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So if that's a legal definition of what is the means to be acceptable by God, then gosh darn, we want to know where the boundaries are so we know when we've met the requirement, right? Because that's the goal, is to, to meet the minimum requirement amount so that then we can pat ourselves on the back and say we've done a good job, Right? I used to experience this all the time when I was a youth pastor, right? Every year we'd try and have the conversation about, you know, uh, physical intimacy and what healthy relationships are like. And, and the question that would always come up is, okay, Kurt, how far is too far? Right? Because the reason they're asking the question is because they want to know where the legal boundary is so they can go as far up to that boundary as they can without getting in trouble, right? Without disappointing God, without disappointing our youth pastor, without jeopardizing our faith. They're wanting a legal requirement that allows them to manage their own spirituality regardless of what the intent of the law was and their desire to live a life of love and peace and grace in God's spirit. How many of us, without even realizing it, are always looking for where that boundary is and where the law is so that we can go as far up to the edge without crossing over? 
By reversing the perspective, Jesus changes the question into an answer, right? Jesus turns the question around, and rather than asking the question, who is my neighbor, he tells this expert in the law, you are the neighbor. It's no longer a question about some legal code. It's a question of your own identity in God. It's not about using a religious code to assess other people and who you should or shouldn't care about. It's about becoming a certain kind of person that is a person that would exhibit the same care and love that God has demonstrated to us. And so this parable is an illustration that these love commands of the Bible is not talking about what you have to do in order to earn salvation or to build a stairway to heaven. Rather, it advocates an understanding of what it means to live life out of a genuine relationship with a loving God who has forgiven you and poured out grace upon grace so that you can discover a whole new way of living, that the way of compassion and the way of love is a lifestyle that God invites us to experience experience that doesn't come from our own strength and our own ability to do the right thing, but simply by allowing God to change our heart from a heart of stone to a heart of compassion. To work within us the love of Christ so that our hearts become soft and, and molded to Christ's character in us so that it's actually his love flowing through us and it's his compassion that gives us eyes to see the hurts and the needs of people around us and to understand that we're not looking to find out who our neighbor is. We're looking to understand that we are a neighbor to anyone who is in need. It is our assessments and judgments about other people that allow us to put up barriers of relationship to them, to, to see them as other or as different or as less important or as an enemy. But this is never how God sees people. According to Jesus, we cannot ever say in advance who our neighbor is because it's not a person's identity that defines them as a neighbor. According to Jesus' parable, there are simply two things that define who neighbors are. It's proximity and it's need. It's who's close to you, who's around you, who do you see, and what is the need that they have that you might be able to help with. That's all it means to be a neighbor. And so we see that the turning point in Jesus' parable comes in verse 33 with the arrival of compassion. And a, and a heart for loving others with God's love. It underscores that compassion and mercy are the evidence of love for God. Therefore, they're the key factors in living in the kingdom of God and being invited to experience the eternal life of God. And ultimately, what we discover through Jesus' teaching is that's the heart of what it means to follow Jesus as his disciples. Love of God and love of neighbor are not theological concepts that we can debate or that we choose to believe or not believe. They're simply ways of living, Jesus says, that we either live or we don't. People who love are simply people who show their love in action. That's why Jesus also said, you will know a tree by its fruit. We can say till the cows come home, we believe this or we believe that or, or, or our th theology is this or our theology is that, but the evidence is in the fruit, right? What we value is determined by where we spend our time, 
where we invest our money, what we choose to celebrate, what we choose to reward. So we can say we value all of these things that God values, but if we look at our lives and how we invest our time, talent, and treasure, those are the things that tell us what we really value. The stories of Jesus in the New Testament point us away from ourselves and towards something else, towards a way of life that God intends and that he desires us to experience because in the way of life that God reveals to us through his son is the way of joy and it's the way of fulfillment and it's the way of happiness. All of the things that we do in our own strength and our own wisdom to try and make ourselves happy always leave us feeling empty, disappointed, in conflict with other people, and struggling to know why is life not working out the way I want it to work out? So the parable of the Good Samaritan is about the way of compassion that Jesus invites his disciples to walk in with him. It's a story about a compassionate enemy, a Samaritan who you would not expect to be the hero of the story, who's the very one that exhibits for us what the command to love God and love others really looks like when it's more than just a theological concept and it's actually lived out in real practical ways in life. There's a personal sense of identity, Jesus said, that grows out of his understanding of what it means to understand that you are the neighbor. And it obliterates any boundaries that might close off the opportunity for compassion or that permit separation based on gender or race or ethnicity or economics or any attitudes of superiority. Klein Snodgrass, again in his commentary called Stories with Intent, says, The parable, like most of Scripture, is concerned with identity. In effect, when people ask Jesus, what do I have to do? He asked in return, well, what kind of person are you? The answer to the second question also answers the first. What kind of person are you today? What kind of person do you imagine yourself to be or would you long to be? If you compare yourself to the story of the Good Samaritan, which is what Jesus always invites us to do with the parables, is to see ourselves in the story. Where do you find yourselves in the story? Which character most exhibits your own experience or your own attitudes? How often do we conveniently alter our paths or our availability or our attention in order to avoid a situation in which we feel like someone may place demands on us that we're not ready to meet. Demands on our time or our energy or our wallets. See, it takes eyes and ears to be able to see a neighbor, Jesus says, but ultimately it takes a heart of compassion. It takes a willingness to be moved by the hurts and the needs of the people around you so that the focus is off yourself finally and you're able to respond to somebody in love not because of how good you are, but because of how good God is and how good he has been to you. Neighbors are people with a heart for others that not only see and feel what other people feel, but respond with kindness and with help. As we talked about last week, many parables of Jesus either have direct or indirect questions for the listeners. And Jesus' question is always in his parables, what would I do? If I found myself in this situation, what would be my response? What would be in my heart? How would I think and respond if I was put in a similar situation? Which character 
am I most like? What, we might come like the lawyer and wonder, who is my neighbor? Who is God calling me to serve? How do I know where God is wanting me to invest my life in, in other people? And the needs of the world around us are so vast and there's so much pain and hurt and brokenness that we see that it, sometimes it's seemingly insurmountable to even know where to begin. And, and then we might become overwhelmed and because we're overwhelmed, we might just simply fall into inaction and become numb to everything because the needs are so great and there's no way that we could ever respond to everything. But I believe that Jesus is saying that being a neighbor doesn't mean meeting every need which, of which you might become aware, but being a neighbor simply means that you have a heart of compassion and a willingness to respond to the needs of others when they come across your path. Helen Shapiro, in her book, Christ-Shaped Character, that some of us are reading along with the series, says, "...in the face of the world's darkness and our own limitations..." Trusting in God's goodness and love can seem naive and too simple. Yet choosing the love and the light that it brings is the real first step in practicing living in Christ. Neighborliness, brothers and sisters, comes in all shapes and sizes. And it's limited only by our failure to see, to have compassion, and to be willing to respond. The Bible tells us that God, as a loving Heavenly Father, blesses us with His gifts of love and mercy and healing and grace, and we come to church every Sunday and we celebrate this amazing grace that, that has saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. But one of the most important pieces of the gospel message is that we understand going all the way back to God's invitation to Abraham to leave his home country and to follow him and become the people of God is that I will bless you and I will make you to be a blessing for those around you. God blesses us so that we can be a blessing to others. And really that's what our 50-day challenge prayer practice is about this week. It's about practicing the prayer of blessing. And in prayer, we can ask the Lord how he might have us take any further steps towards hospitality and blessing to those around us. But do we understand, brothers and sisters, that one of the most powerful and readily available ways that you can be a blessing to someone else in need is to lift them before the Heavenly Father in prayer? And yet, how often do we take the time to really pray for those who are in need around us? to spend time appealing to God on behalf of those who we know are in need of healing and grace and mercy and reconciliation. And can I even challenge us to say, how much of those prayers do we pray for those who are even closest to us? For our husbands, for our wives, for our kids, for our grandkids, for grandma and grandpa, Men and women, we have the ability to be neighbor to the people that are closest to us, not just the strangers in our midst. Those who now live in the power of the Spirit of Christ, the Apostle Paul tells us, no longer need a law to guide them. Because the love of God, alive within them, guides them to fulfill the very purpose for why the law was given in the first place. 
In the past, God gave us the law to help us identify the problem with our own sin, but now in Christ, God has given us his spirit to allow us to actually fulfill that law by genuinely loving each other and becoming more and more like Christ because of his spirit alive in us, working his character into our life. And so as we seek to love God and to love others in our own lives and here at Faith Covenant Church, let us remember the way of compassion and the parable of the Good Samaritan that changes the question from who is my neighbor to a recognition that I am called to be the neighbor. And may we then have the courage and the grace to go out and live the way of compassion in our own lives, trusting in the power of Christ within us, to give us everything we need to fulfill this calling because it's his love and his power at work. Men and women, I believe we're moving into a season where God is wanting to invite us to a deeper experience of his presence and his power at work in our lives. But it means that we have to pause long enough to sit with the presence of Christ, to pray through the Spirit, to allow the life of Christ to be born in us so that it can grow and flow out of us. That's really what the invitation to communion is as well. I want to invite the worship team to come back and join me on the platform. As we come to this holy, sacred feast, Jesus tells us that it's through his presence and his power at work in our lives that we even have the possibility of fulfilling this calling that he's given us to follow him as his disciples. And so as we come to this Holy Communion today, I want to invite you to once again pray for His Spirit and ask for God's blessing, not only for your life and for your family's life, but for our church and our community. The unity of love that we have in God comes from the broken body and the poured out blood of Jesus who gave His life so that we might have life and have it abundantly. And what is an abundant life? It's a fruitful life. Abundance is a farming term that describes the fruit of God's love at work in our life. The evidence of God's love is our hearts of compassion that motivate us to be a blessing to those around us. And so as you come to this holy table, come not because you must, but because you may. Come not because you have any claim on the grace of God, but because in your frailty and in your sin, you recognize the, your, your need for God's healing and wholeness that comes only through his grace and his love. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he broke bread. And after giving thanks, he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembering me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant, the new promise, the new relationship in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembering me. And the Apostle Paul reminds us that as often as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim the sufficiency of the death of the Messiah to save us. And we rely on that strength and that hope and that power until he comes again. God, we thank you that you did not withhold anything from us, but gave us your whole self in your son, Jesus. May you meet us again in this place and as we participate in this meal, claiming ourselves to be Jesus' true disciples, would you offer us your mercy and your grace again because 
We need your power and your presence in our lives to help enable us to live out this calling that you've given us, to be people of compassion, to be people of kindness, to be people who are willing to help one another. So bless us in this meal. Meet us in this place and give us the mercy and grace to be your people once again. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.